Good morning, this is John Wagner, and I am so glad that you're joining us this morning on the stream. And we're looking forward to what we can do uh, even beyond this throughout the week and meeting you in your homes. Uh, I'd like to, to bring to you our message this morning as we're looking at faces about the cross. There was one individual that really kind of stands out. Uh, it's not one that we really like, but yet he's there, and it's an important role that we need to examine this morning. You can find this story in, in the book of Luke, the 23rd chapter, and in verse 39. And we're told that one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, now Jesus, you know, he died and he was hung between two criminals, one to his right and the other to his left. And these two outlaws had most likely been companions probably in crime. They probably had pillaged and, and shed blood together. Uh, so far as we know, they had been arrested together and, and had stood trial together and they had been condemned together. And now they had taken that long walk of the road to Golgotha, carrying their own crosses as they were preparing for themselves to die. Now, while from our perspective it seems as if they're alike, there's still some differences about them that I think we can discover uh, between them. And one of these outlaws has this really bigness about him, this huge character that we talk about often because he, he kind of comes to Jesus in a wonderful passage and, and stands beside him and encourages him and, and offers up some challenging words to others around him. And yet there was this other that made an impression on us in just the, the littleness of his character. I want to call him the littlest outlaw instead of the greatest outlaw. Uh, he, he strikes me as a man whose, whose pettiness is, is even more pronounced than his, probably his wickedness and the way that he lived. Of course, when we speak of bigness and littleness, I'm referring to their moral character and their qualities. To determine the size of man, we don't put a measuring tape around his, uh, his body or around his mind, but but rather we put it around his heart. That's what God looks at himself. While we might not think much of his uh, mental capacity or his insignificant personal achievements, yet we might discover that the individual really is great in his soul and in his character. On the other hand, there are those that are big in ability and big in achievement, but really they're petty in soul and they're little. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that this man... Um, finds his place in history uh, next to others such as Adolf Hitler. We, we might consider Adolf Hitler as one of the greatest military geniuses of all time, but even though he was a great strategist from warfare, he was also a very little man with the military ability of a giant, yet he had the moral soul of a pygmy. Now, how talented is this outlaw in our story today? I want us to kind of look at that. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure really who he was, but to us, he really was insignificant. He, he was a little man in character. So I guess I might begin by asking, really, what right do we have calling him a little man? We only get really one snapshot of him in Scripture, and he comes upon the stage only at one time, and he utters only one brief statement. And it may seem like a very small thing upon which we can pass our judgment, but even the scientist doesn't need a whole sea to tell the nature of the ocean. Uh, he doesn't need, all he needs really is just one drop. Uh, he doesn't need a whole skeleton to tell us what kind of animal it was. Uh, he, he, just, he knows by just simply looking at one bone or a fragment of a bone. And just as we don't need the whole panorama of this man's life, he needs 
only to look at one point in his life here at the end, and we can determine really it seems to be what kind of man he was. This scene here on Calvary is a window through which we can look into this man's soul, and we see when we do, we look like marks that are extreme littleness to us. The scene upon Calvary is in this window which we look through, and we can look into this man's soul, and what we see is when we look to him are these marks of extreme littleness. He, he was little in that he, he permitted himself to speak words of criticism, words, insults, and, and slanderous things to Jesus in regards to the facts of the case he really didn't know anything about. And, and the chances are that this man had really never seen Jesus before, and yet he is here joining in with those around him. He therefore knew very little about him. And yet when the religious leaders and the crowd that gathered around that crucifixion scene that day began assaulting Jesus with their words without any effort to find out the truth, he just simply joins in with them and makes a difficult decision. So, I wonder, what really caused this outlaw to join in with the crowd and the enemies of Jesus? Well, we're not told. Probably he did so for a variety of reasons that we could speculate. I mean, he may have simply been an imitator of the people and he was just going to try and do what they were doing hearing the angry words that were being shouted from the men focusing that on Jesus and and he, he may have just joined in with the mob so many times we all do that we we see that somebody's taken all the toilet paper and so we run to the store just like them and we grab it off the shelves and we we look out for our own selves and we join in with the crowd that way but there are always those who do just that after all everybody was doing it so why shouldn't I Years ago, there was a cartoon that, that uh, had this kind of a demonstration of this type of mindset. What it was, was it was a woman on a bicycle traveling down a path, and as she was coming upon an intersection, there was another uh, road coming across, which was loaded with a bunch of sheep, and it looked like they were going to collide, but at the last moment, as she's making her way through, the first sheep, the leader of them, he jumped up really high over her, and, and he went on his way. And, and likewise, the second sheep did the exact same thing, and the third, and the fourth, and, and eventually, it went all the way down through the rest of the sheep. Well, by the time the last sheep had finished jumping over she was already at home and in bed. And I guess if we were to ask that final sheep why he jumped as the others when really there was nobody else there, it might have been simply that, well, everybody else was jumping, and so I jumped. You know, this little outlaw might have been joining into the cry against Jesus because of not only imitating, but maybe because of prejudice. Rumors about Jesus have been blowing around for months now in the community, talking about who he was and what a rebel rouser he was and going against the establishment of religion. And, and, and so he may have heard those rumors, and, and without trying to find out whether or not they were true, he became prejudiced just like them. I mean, there's no accounting for his prejudice any more than there is for us. I mean, we often dislike people for no other reason simply than that maybe they don't go to our church, they don't look like us, they, they uh, maybe belong to a, a separate nation or a group of people, or their race is a different color than us, and so we have our own prejudices. Prejudice really, I think, is a blindfold by which we often cover our eyes and we don't see the truth and the reality of it. It's a kind of like a cotton that we put in our ears and that we stuff so that it only enables us to hear the bad things rather than the good. Possibly this, this little outlaw uh, may have rail, railed upon Jesus because, uh, uh, just for maybe an even meaner reason, when we work 
of crucifixion was over and Jesus was found hanging on the cross, he prayed this amazing prayer in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. And even while this little outlaw heard those powerful words and they looked into those piercing eyes of Jesus, he didn't see hope. He didn't see life, but rather he hardened his own heart all the more and he became bitter and angry and he was filled with this poison of resentment. Could it be that this little outlaw was envious of Jesus? Uh, you know, it would seem so. I mean, it's hard to explain his hate any other way. Envy, you know, is, is after all the, the child of hate. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that, that love does not envy. It has no part of it. And not only is envy a child of hate, but it is a child of hate in its meanest form. I mean, the envious man always seeks to drag the other people down below him and push them down because he doesn't want them to be celebrated at all. When the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son came home, his father decided he was going to establish a, 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 a celebration and a feast and go kill the fatted calf and bring it here and we're going to have this wonderful turnout of people because my son who was lost is now fine. He then shifts into another scene within that story. And all of a sudden, come walking up to the house is the older son. But he's not too happy when he heard about everything that was going on and, and his, his brother was now home and, and, and this honor was being shown to his, his repentant brother. It just kind of filled him with envy and, and anger. And he was so envious that he even sought to spoil the celebration, not only for himself, but other people as well. Envy is as deadly as it is ugly. It was born with a murderer's club in its hand from the very beginning of time in the hand of Cain as he was envious of his own brother Abel. Yet I think there are a few of us that have not had, at times, succumbed to this ugly child of hate. I mean, this outlaw, he might have insulted Jesus because he was an imitator, or maybe because he was prejudiced, or because Christ's greatness filled him with envy and hate. But for whatever the reason was, his conduct seemed that of just a petty soul, a person who was diminished in life. And this pettiness of this man, I think, was even further seen and demonstrated when we hear his words of prayer. And I think that's what his words were. I mean, they could have been when you listen to them and you read them. I mean, the words in our text that he speaks, it's almost as if it's his final words that were ever recorded. And he's speaking to the creator of our world. The fourth chapter of the book of, of Acts, there are some Christians who are upon their knees and they're spending time in prayer. See, they've come upon some very disturbing times. Uh, their backs are up against the wall because the religious people are out to get them and persecution is taking place everywhere. And, and they have to go into hiding and they have to run and leave their homelands. And there's, there is likely to be death in their midst. And they pray, really whatever comes, that, that they may see it through without shame to themselves and without dishonor to their Lord. And they want to be, they want to be bold in their faith and continue on. And that prayer marks them as greatness of soul. But when we consider his, I think there's a lot to be, to be looked at. This prayer of this little outlaw, I think, is, is really kind of petty like himself. Listen to what he says there in, in verse 39 of Luke 23. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
I mean, first it was petty in, in its extent, what it included here. I mean, who's he praying for after all? At most for himself and maybe for his companion, but it doesn't even appear that way. But when we read between the lines, I think what we can see is that we can see that he was really only concerned about himself. He wanted down off that cross as bad as anybody else. And I think if we're Christians, we must have a broader worldview than that. We shouldn't just think about ourselves. We should think about those around us. We must look to the salvation of others, even to the end of the earth, we're told. But his prayer is just, it's just petty, not only in its extent, but I think it's even more petty in its content. I think we can ask, so was he not praying for salvation? I mean, isn't that what he said? Save yourself and us? I mean, he was, but I think it was a very small word salvation that he was looking at. I don't think it's this kind of salvation that came across his lips like the salvation we talk about today. And salvation, rightly understood, is the biggest thing for which we can actually pray to God about. But there's nothing in this world that I think we need more of than salvation. But what is the salvation that Jesus offers? That's a question I think we've got to examine ourselves. You see, the salvation that he offers is a salvation that means the forgiveness of sins. It's a salvation that, that means the restoration of a broken relationship between man and God because of the things that we've done against him. It, it means that sharing in, in, just in the divine nature that, that sends us out into the world to live Christ-like and to make a difference, even in our community here that seems to be at wit's end as to what we're going to do during this trying time. But what did salvation mean on the lips of this little outlaw? I don't think he had forgiveness of sins in mind. I don't think he had saving the world from the, the, the death that they were about to experience and, and the punishment that was going to come as God's judgment upon them with his wrath. I think it meant only escape. I think what he was trying to say to Jesus was, take me down off the cross. I don't mind being a sinner. I just don't want to be here on the cross, and I don't want to have to suffer the way that they're trying to make me suffer. I think he, he said, I don't mind being what I am, but I hate to be where I am. It's okay if I'm a criminal, if I'm a crook. I don't mind my crookedness at all. I'm not the least concerned about my character, but what I am concerned about really is my comfort. And we know that he was very uncomfortable there as he's preparing for his death. I mean, what a petty prayer that I think that could be. Yet, as Jesus once said, let him who is out sin cast the first stone. You and I have made that same prayer. We've been concerned simply about our own good, our own well-being, and, and we've not cared about really eternal significance. We just want out of our present situation. And we've promised God, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that, and I promise. And then we never keep our promises, do we? You see, it strikes me that this is one of the most prevalent prayers of our day. There are multitudes that seem to feel that all that is necessary to enjoy life is for everybody else just to draw a pension, to get a free ride here and there, and to live without working. That's all the rhetoric that I hear coming today around us. Henri Philippe Benoni Omer Joseph Petain. <laughs> that's a name that's a mouthful. He was better known as Marshall Petain. 
he was a French general officer uh, who attained the position eventually in life as the Marshal of France at the end of World War I, the highest honor they could give somebody. Marshal Patain, he points out the fact that this love of comfort and this love of ease for the French people was one of the greatest causes of her downfall. I mean, such a concept of salvation is also, I think, very dangerous, both to the individual and to a nation. Easy street may be comfortable, but too often it leads us to the end of Rotten Road or maybe Cesspool Lane. And we don't want to be where we are. So what did this littleness do for this outlaw? I think it tortured him. Not only physically on the cross, but but in his soul it was torturous. You see, crucifixion was agony in and of itself, and that was enough. But he added to his agony by allowing himself to become so little in his conversation with the creator of the world. Pettiness is often also the mother of pain. And there are those who can find cruelty and bitterness where only kindness was ever really intended. To be little is to hurt others. I think one reason why the flea is such a pest is because he's so small. We, we just can't deal with him. Yet it's also bad to be swallowed by a whale. But, but probably be, nibbled more, uh, be more painful to be nibbled, nibbled to death by, by the minnows. You see, it's those little things that bother us. Think about it. How many homes in America? I'm going to silence it while I'm doing this. What's that? Okay. Well, think about this. How many homes in America are wrecked by sheer pettiness on the part of the husband or the wife, or, or both for that matter? The family gets destroyed because of the little things. I mean, after nearly 35 years of ministry and listening to the, the stories of domestic failures and tragedies, I, I think I've reached a conclusion that, that it's not the big things that wreck a marriage, but it's the little things. Finally, this man's littleness caused him to miss the biggest and the best opportunity of a lifetime. As little as he was, there was offered to him a chance in his final hour to be truly great. And yet he blew it. His companion, on the other hand, in, in, in crime, uh, took that chance. And, and he was big enough to see through his own eyes that which was in Jesus that, that made him ashamed and, and penitent for, for his own sins. And, and while it gave him hope and, 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 and comfort, so therefore he prays this unbelievable prayer there in Luke 23, in verse 42. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But what did Jesus answer this petty criminal when he asked, Jesus, save yourself and us? He doesn't respond to him at all. He gets no words. He gets no response. I mean, there are prayers that are so little and so mean that I don't think God himself will even answer them. This little outlaw might have gone out of his world into an eternal fellowship with Jesus forever had he not been blinded by his own pettiness. 
Finally, I think, is there a cure for this kind of littleness in life? I think there are three things, yes. The first one is this. We need to face the sin and the ugliness of it and make a determined fight against it. Know that you will be tempted every morning when you rise from your slumber. You'll be awakened into an opportunity to become self-centered and condescending to others. Sometimes our morning is our worst time of day. It's in those moments like this that we need to begin our day in prayer, seeking God's strength to overcome the the challenges of our own pettiness in life and allowing His Spirit to fill us with, with His character and to make us more like Jesus every day so that we're no longer like ourselves. Not only must we pray and fight against this littleness, I think we need to fight with positivity. We need to be encouragers rather than being negative. The only way to drive darkness out of a room is to introduce light into it. And Jesus is the light of this world. And if your life is dark, I think simply you need to allow the light of Christ to begin shining in your life to make a difference. I mean, the one foe of this littleness is the bigness of Christ himself. Henry Ward Beecher was a great preacher. But nothing finer was ever said about him than these words. Listen, this is what someone said about his character. They said, whoever did him an injury could count with assurance upon having that injury repaid by kindness. Booker T. Washington also was a man of upright character. And he said this, he said, I resolved that I would permit no man to narrow or degrade my soul by making me hate him. Likewise, Abraham Lincoln, he also possessed this type of bigness of character and morality. And when Stanton called him the original gorilla, the original gorilla, you would think he'd come back with some kind of words, but not Lincoln. Instead, what, what Abraham Lincoln did, he retaliated by appointing him to his cabinet, putting him in a position of power in the country. And I think the final thing is this. If we are going to have a cure for this littleness of character, we finally, I think, need to let God into our lives. I mean, here's a fact upon which we can rely on with perfect confidence. Our God can make our little souls into big souls. He can take the little outlaws of our life and change us into something that is great so that even today we too can be in paradise with Him. Consider what a small man the Apostle John was when he first met Jesus. He was so little that he was eager to call down fire from heaven to destroy this this village nearby that was kind of ignorant about who Christ was. And when they'd gone there to seek shelter and and they would not allow Jesus or his disciples to stay there, he he wanted Jesus to call fire down from heaven to just to burn them all up. I mean, that that was his way of dealing with things. Anger? Sure. I mean, after all, he was even called a son of thunder. James and John, but he became so great that it seemed as if he could take the whole world into his heart by the end of his life. And we cherish the words that he has written, not only in the Gospel of John, but the letters that he wrote to the church in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and most prevalently for all of us, really, the book of Revelation. Change in character, I'd say there was a big change, but it was because he spent time with Jesus, and I think the same thing can happen to us. I mean, seeing this, this same Jesus Christ that changed John is eager for us to set our feet about upon the path of greatness of heart as well. 
Listen to what John writes to us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 as we close out. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You see, all of us, therefore, we have this capacity for the greatness of our soul. I mean, this, this is the gospel that, that's really my privilege to bring and speak to everybody about. It, it changes lives. It is good news. We don't have to die upon our cross screaming our hatred to God or to Jesus. But we can die in peace and assurance knowing that He is willing to forgive us and accept us and offer us paradise. I hope that, that this week you will take some time. A lot of you probably have a lot of times on your hands if you're not working, if you're not in school. And just focus on what God is doing in the midst of this storm. There's some great things that He can accomplish in your life. If you'd be willing to open up His Word, meditate upon it daily, Share it with those around you. I mean, now's a great time to communicate with others through all the different variety of means that, that we have available to us today. Make a difference. And the words that you speak, even as if they would be your final words, because Jesus saves.